the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the number five episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast, a safe haven for ex-evangelicals, ex-fundamentalists, anyone restless or questioning their faith, or anyone curious about the history of Christianity. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have a very special guest with us, Barbara Simons, author of Escaping Christianity, Finding Christ. Barbara, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. I'm excited. Great. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us. Uh, we're going to start our conversation in a moment and learn about Barbara's journey and what she learned along the way. But first, I wanted to share a little bit about what she and I have in common. Barbara and I were both in the evangelical and charismatic movements for decades. We left after a gradual process of rethinking the theology behind these movements. And we both were involved in events like the Toronto Blessing and other supposed charismatic revivals. What I appreciate about our journeys is that it appears we had slightly different ways of critiquing and reevaluating our faith, but we came to much of the same conclusions. Both of us used logical reasons for rethinking things, of course, but it appears Barbara had more experiential reasons. While while I did a lot of research on history that helped helped me to evolve, so we'll we'll hear from Barbara on her take on this. But Barbara, I think a good place to start is with the title of your book, which I think is a great title: "Escaping Christianity, Finding Christ." Why is it important to differentiate between Christianity and Christ? Wow. Well, it's because I think Christianity has been given such a bad rap because of the people that have by and large created the religion. It just does not emulate its namesake. And so for me, escaping Christianity, that's really what it felt like to me when I finally broke free. It felt like an escape. And I was and am glad to be free from that whole uh, way of thinking that is not in keeping with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. I, I had a similar uh, experience. I mean, there's a system in Christianity 
uh, that's very different than, you know, the basic core teachings of Jesus. Uh, that's a good way to put it. Um, what, what were the major red flags that, that you saw that prompted you to begin questioning things? One of the main things that happened is we had a, a, an apostolic teacher come through our city and he began to help us um, by making some very bold statements. One statement that he said was that uh, Lucifer and Satan are not one in the same. And he said, but don't trust me. Don't believe what I say. Study for yourself. And then he just began uh, to go on with the meeting and told us to open our Bibles. And I raised my hand and I said, wait, you can't, you can't go on from there. You have to explain. And he said, no, you must do your own study. And so I thought, well, heck, if I've got that wrong, what else do I have wrong? And that really launched me into paying attention to those inner prompts that we feel when something is contrary to what is true, which I think Christianity is, oh my gosh, there's so much that is contrary to what we know to be true. So I started paying attention and, and launched off on several different aspects of, you know, who Satan was and what hell is and what heaven is and who is Jesus and what does it mean to be saved? Well, it's amazing to me that someone would actually come and go to your church and actually say that. I don't remember anyone saying that to our, in our churches. Uh, I think that was pretty rare, right? It was, but it was in my home. It was, I had started to um, begin my journey out initially. And it was when I had a, an experience of losing the word saved. Someone asked me, hey, Barbara, do you think that so-and-so is saved? And I went to go give her an answer and I lost the word. I, I thought I was having some kind of a neurological event. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find the word saved. I didn't know what it meant. And so I had to really just uh, learn to get still and to question, what does it mean to be saved? And so I began to question that and other things and uh, brought in this apostolic teacher from a whole different um, religious background just to see what he thought. And so he, he really wasn't in the church and that, that probably would not have gone over very well. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> right. That makes sense. I mean, uh, but he did give you some very good advice. Uh, and then this is one of the issues with the system of Christianity is they don't teach you to think for yourselves and do your own research. Um, they basically just give you some pat answers and expect you to move on. And if they give you any material, if it's not still not good enough for you, then they, they kind of look down on you. That's right. Um, yeah. So what about, um, you talk about in your book, cognitive dissonance. Um, tell us about that and the struggle you had and what people struggle with. What does that mean? Well, there's deep down inside of us, we have the truth. We know the truth. The spirit within us knows all things, but it's our mind, our human mind that kind of gets in the way that wants or needs to be right, our egocentric self. 
And so when we're faced with things like, you know, one of the main things that I, I, I love to say back then and now is, why would a God, a loving father, teach us, you know, through his son to love, to forgive, to pray for our enemies while he burns his forever in fire? That is a good example of cognitive dissonance where you believe your, your, your God to be a loving uh, uh, deity, father figure, whatever, however you want to, um, to see him, but then to know that he will burn you alive um, forever if you disobey. That doesn't make any sense. And yet yeah. we try to rationalize those things and say, well, no, it's, it's not God that would send you to hell. You send yourself to hell. And see that, you know, when people say that to me, I, I immediately think cognitive dissonance because they're holding two different ideals in their mind and they have a hard time rationalizing why God would send you there. So then they say, well, no, you send yourself there. Right. And I, I've had that same experience. Um, the, the, uh, you know, there are some logical fallacies going on and they just don't make sense. And so um, in the movement, like you said, people try to rationalize. Well, you don't, God doesn't really send them. They choose. But then why doesn't God leave the door open for forgiveness and restoration? Why does, why is the door shut for eternity? And, and you, if you keep digging you'll find out the whole thing will break down, but people don't want you to dig that deep. They want to, to, to you to accept it on the surface. Um, and, and, and For them to accept that on the spot causes a major breakdown in the rest of their theology, just like what happened to me when I found out that Satan and Lucifer scripturally you know, documented are not the same it caused me to break down and think, oh my gosh, if that's not true, then what else do I have wrong? Right, right. Yeah, I, I think those are very good points. Um, it's like a house of cards and, and when one thing falls, then you want to look at something else and it affects another point of theology and then you want to dig a little deeper. Um, exactly. House of cards is a good way to put that. That's yeah. what it felt like to me. Right. So one of the things that I read in your book was that you fight, you cite five stages that you went through to get into evangelicalism and finally come out and get grounded. Um, uh, indoctrination, deprogramming, shifting consciousness, scriptural templates, and, and embracing the divine. I thought we'd go through each one of those briefly. We'll leave embracing the divine for the very end, but why do you call it indoctrination? What's, what's going on there? Well, it's a, it's a form of brainwashing programming. I mean, you know, I began my journey in this when I was four, four or five years old, very young. And we hear things repetitively, you know, throughout our, our journey in Christianity. And so we, we begin to adopt these things as true. Um, and whenever anyone presents us with an argument, we automatically have a rote answer. Um, like I can remember leaving uh, the church system and someone would come up to me and say, 
where are you going to church now, Barbara? And I would say, I am the church. And they would say, what? And I would say, I don't go to a building. I am the church. And they, nine times out of 10, Michael, they would say, well, the scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of the body. And so we have these, these statements that are made with so much repetition over the decades that I was within Christianity, that that is to me an insidious form of control and manipulation for those that find themselves within the system. You begin to say and to repeat ad nauseum these things, and you adopt them without question that that's what it means. Do not forsake the assembling. That means, you know, you better get your body into church. You better go and you better tithe and you better uh, assemble and, you know, because that is what they say a commandment. And that's just one example, but there's many, but repetition, not only repetition, but lacing it and having its basis in fear of eternal judgment, separation, and torment will go a long way to reinforce any dogma, any doctrine. Yeah, it's very fear-based. It's amazing. Um, I think what you said about that verse in Hebrews, I think it is, um, what that is, is there's there's a, a bunch of like proof texts that, well, this, you know, this doctrine can be you know, approved by this verse, and no one really um, stops to think. Well, what is the context of that verse, or why why do I uh, interpret that as talking about an institutional church? And you know, on and on and on. There's a whole set of questions that you could ask about a verse like that, but no one seems to want to go there. Right. And then, like you said, the fear. I mean, you don't want to question, right? Because well, you know, there's that fear factor um, in various ways, not just hell, but just, you know, being disobedient or, you know, not, you know, losing your family and your friends who are in church and, and being maybe uh, um, disciplined in the church or so forth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's what happens. You know, we, we become uh, endangered of losing our whole social uh the whole social aspect of our lives when we, when we belong to a church and a church culture and we experience their teaching and we have friendships formed, deep friendships. And when we begin to question, people begin to look at you differently and you're threatened. That's very sad. It's insidious <laughs> is what it is. And, and, and we're only talking about a couple of examples. I understand what you're saying. There's just a whole bunch of things that, you're really, it is like an indoctrination. I get that. Um, uh, so once you're indoctrinated and you start to kind of ask these questions, you know, how, how do you deprogram and what, what is that like? Well, I would imagine it's different for everybody, but for me, um, I can remember one day I was sitting in my living room and I had an open vision, Michael, when I was, I was beginning to question even if Jesus was real. And I felt almost, um, 
gosh, I don't know what I felt fearful for even thinking that. But then I remembered the scripture that said, if I go away, I will send the comforter. And so what I had to do is I said, I said, Jesus, I'm letting you go because I don't know where I am anymore. And I need to be comforted in these things. And I had an open vision of this huge, uh, it was like a, a, a bubble. And inside the bubble were a bunch of little bubbles. And I saw all of the bubbles had labels and there was uh, Christianity, there, there was uh, Hindu, there was Native American spiritism, there was atheism, there was, uh, I mean, it was just full of labels of all the world's religions and a hand came and pointed at the little sphere, one of the little spheres named Christianity. And I said, what is this? And they said, that's Christianity. And you are not there anymore. Interesting. And, and from that point on, I felt it was okay to erase everything that I had learned. And I knew that whatever I needed, whatever was true, would never leave me. But I put all of my pet uh, doctrines and dogma up on this huge blackboard, and I just begin to erase, you know, in my, in my mind's eye. But I knew in my heart that what I was meant to retain, what was valuable, what was pure, what was, you know, benevolent, kind, wholesome, loving, that that would remain that truth never can, can dissipate. It can't go away because it's universal. And so I begin to take leaps like that and say, well, I'm, I'm going to question if Jesus was, and it turns out that the Christian Jesus is not accurate. And so I had to let a lot of those things go with peace and with um, trusting in truth that whatever I needed would remain. So that was my that was my process. I just had to let fear go. You know, I'm not that adept um, of a student, so I not, I'm not like you. This this is why I had to depend a lot on my experiences. And this was a major thing that happened when I saw that big bubble, and I all of a sudden knew that I was not inside that other smaller bubble anymore that I really wasn't in any bubble. And so even now I refuse to label myself or to define myself. Yeah, I, 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 that's fascinating. I, I, you brought out a couple of things. One, our experiences, uh, like you said, you have more experiential, um, I don't know, revelations or something. Something comes to you, you see something in the spirit and that helped you kind of get to the next step. And for me, like you said, uh, I'm, de I'm definitely the deep thinking research guy. So <laughs> I'm always looking at history and, and I make a lot of these uh, uh, like progress deprogramming by studying history. And then when you study history, it, 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 you realize, wait a minute, what they say about X, Y, and Z in the church does not line up with a good study of history. So that's interesting. There's, you know, we have both have two different ways of, of kind of like deprogramming and growing, and but they, they, we come to the same conclusions. Well, and we need both. 
you know, the, the, the intellectual part of us, the part where the ego dwells, needs to see facts and data. It needs to. It needs to rationalize and, and to use logic. Yep. And then there's the other part of us that, you know, can, can free float in those other, you know, experiential domains, but we need both. You're absolutely right. Study, but that, that has not been, and I actually read and study a lot, but the core of my, of my shift really came from, from a more of an, of an experiential base than, than study. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, anyway. That's interesting. So that reminds me, um, uh, when I was in the charismatic movement, I had some amazing spiritual experiences. Um, you know, sometimes some of the things I saw, I was kind of turned off to, but other things I felt like, Hey, that was God. That was love. That was good. So what would you say? Why is it wrong to think if you have a spiritual experience in a church, then all the things taught in that church system are true. Why, why should we not jump to that conclusion? You know, I say that when we see the miraculous, they tend to validate whatever system of belief we find ourselves within. And so if a, if a, if a, if a, if a young Muslim man um, has a near death experience and he goes and he experiences his 72 virgins, you know, that validates his faith and there's nothing that can shake that. You know, likewise, when we're within Christianity and we have these, these visions of, of heaven or we experience someone being healed, we say, well, we must be right because the miraculous happened here. But the truth of the matter is that love, God, the divine, it doesn't judge it doesn't judge our system. It doesn't judge us where we are. It just loves us. And it pours out the miraculous on all people. It does not discriminate. And I've learned that from being outside of the church, where I've experienced the miraculous as well as being inside the church. So a miracle cannot validate. Otherwise, you know, when you... <laughs> It doesn't make sense within Christianity when someone doesn't receive a healing, when someone doesn't get healed, when someone dies rather than, than experiences a miraculous healing. Did God withhold from them because, and then the explanations begin. They didn't pray hard enough. They didn't believe. Right. They didn't have unshakable faith. And it's very damaging. You know, and at the end of the day, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And blessings are poured out on the just and the unjust. Yeah, I think you, you make a really good point there. Because um, uh, in my historical study, um, so much of the Bible is what we call an economy of exchange. Um, you, you know, if you want something for God, you got to jump through some hoops or do something or sacrifice or whatever. And that, that attitude is carried over into the modern church. And, you know, like, it's just, well, if you, if you pray hard enough and have enough faith, you'll get healed. Or if you, you know, if you don't, you're not going to get healed. So there's something wrong with you. And, and, and rather than just realizing that, no, that's not the way God thinks. Love is, you know, like you said, it's not discriminating. Everyone can receive it. You don't have to jump through hoops. That's right. 
So um, one of the other things that you had in your stages was shifting consciousness. And maybe you've touched on this. What, what is the process of shifting consciousness? You've, you talked a little bit about that. What else is there about that? I think it's being willing to, to me, it means being willing to shift your perspective. Um, for example, and this may kind of play into a little bit more of, of helping explain the templates, but I, for example, baptism. When we see baptism, it's all about, you know, dunking, chunking, dribbling water on a forehead. It's, it's about getting wet and then uh, pronouncing your uh, belief in uh, the Christian faith. But when I begin to shift, when I begin to just open and to allow myself to think beyond the box, I shifted into a whole different place. And when I say consciousness, consciousness is a word that simply means what you are aware of. And so baptism no longer was uh, about someone getting wet, about being put under the water. Um, what it really came uh, to be to me was the divine had a journey into human consciousness, into us. Water is representative as a symbol um, of human consciousness. And so the divine being wrapped in the, the human form, we all know that Christ is in us, the divine in human form took the plunge into human consciousness. And so I didn't see it anymore as a, an act or a ritual that I did. I saw it more explaining that the divine took a journey into me mm -hmm. and was, was, was uh, immersed in human consciousness for a time while it slumbered within us. Um, so I just see Baptists and communion and, you know, male and female, all of it I see as something a bit more mysterious rather than perfunctory. You know, the, the teachings of Paul when he said, you know, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. But then he says, nevertheless, I'm speaking a mystery. And yet the church teaches in some of these more uh, strict Christian, uh, like Christian fundamentalism teaches you, you know, wives you have to submit. No, that's not what that means. It's a mystery. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I, um, also, I think it does say actually first submit to one another. <laughs> so they skip over that one. <laughs> husbands love your wife. So, I mean, it's, You're right, yeah. these are mysteries and you have to be willing to shift out of your rote understanding in order to let the spirit begin to bring definition and enhancement to the glass that we see through darkly. And that will happen as long as we are willing to shift into out from um, dogmatic understanding of scripture into something that's a little bit more fluid and living. And that can happen. It happens with just the uh, willingness 
to yield and to not have these dogmatic palaces that say, no, this is the way, this is right. This is what I know, rather than saying, hey, I don't know. I don't know about these things. I don't, I don't have my pat wrote answers anymore. So teach me anew, teach me afresh, lead me in the way. And the spirit does, but it won't with someone that has their heels dug in. The spirit from what I have under, understood in my 43 years within the system and now over 20 outside of the system, it's a gentleman. The divine is pure love and it will never club us over the head with anything. But when we yield, when we are willing to shift is when the magic really happens. Yeah, I, I, I think that for me, um, you get these epiphanies, you know, like, whoa, wait a minute, I've been looking at this wrong. And then you kind of, you kind of start getting it. And, and so it's very interesting to me that you've had a lot of these epiphanies and shifting your consciousness through experiences and just thinking things through, maybe a little Bible study. But, you know, when you look at history, too, I mean, it, it, it matches, um, you know, just, just the way that the earliest uh, uh, followers of Christ looked upon things or what they meant when they said X, Y, or Z. When you look at it historically, you come up with, uh, a new way of looking at many doctrines. Um, like one of the things that I discovered was the uh, Eastern uh, churches or the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, they, they still have their problems, but they'd look at a lot of doctrine very differently than Western churches. And that's just historical. You can track it in history. And they, uh, they, they have more of a, their view is more what you're describing uh, although you know they still have some issues, I I believe, but uh, it's it's just fascinating to me that, um, like you said, if you have an open mind, you look at history a little bit, you you pray and ask for wisdom, uh, you'll begin to shift your way of thinking on some of these things. That's um, right, and it's been also, Michael. My experience is that it's it's fluid. It can it changes along with where we are in our own conscious development. You know, even some of the most rigid, you know, dogmatic things that I understood. And then 10 years later, I understood it different. And now 10 years again, I, I'm, I still, it continually shifts and moves and grows along with us. Yeah, it's kind of like maybe you, you, you're given only what you can handle and then you move on, you know, when you can handle the next way of looking at it, you're given that. Maybe something exactly. like that. That's yeah. a good way to put it. That's exactly right. So I know that you, you know, like myself, you probably went through a lot of, uh, got a lot of rejection from church family and friends uh, when you started coming out and voicing some of your new uh, ways of looking at things. What, what was that like to be rejected in the church? And what, what is that experience? What was it like for you? Two words, bone crushing. Oh, wow. Horrible, horrible because these, are, these were friendships that I absolutely adored. You know, it went to an emotional level with me. And um, so to have people, and even most recently, it was, I've been out of the system for 20 years and 
had a, a really good best friend for, for, you know, a couple of decades say to me uh, three years ago, I, I can't, I can't be your friend. You know, these are people that, you know, our, our husbands were, were good friends, if not best friends. We traveled the world with them on vacations and wept with them and they with us over, you know, the birth of grandchildren and, and you know, and, and to have someone say, nope, that's, that's over with because you believe differently than me. You know, it's like, Michael, what kind of a, of a path and pattern are they setting to show the love of Christ to you. That is not emulating the Savior that they hold in high esteem. That is not the path and pattern. And yet, that's what they chose and choose to do, to separate themselves from anyone that doesn't believe like them because it challenges, you know, the things that I am speaking about, that cognitive dissonance that we, that we spoke of, it causes, it, it, there's a chemical in the brain called norepinephrine, and it was in our evolutionary process that used to be released in us when we would chase after food, uh, or when we were chased by wild animals. And it's the same thing that's re released in our brain today when we are threatened. And so not only can people not, uh, can't, they, they don't want to hear what you're saying, but they can't, because all they're thinking of is fight or flight. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, that, that's a fact. Norepinephrine yeah. is released in the brain when we are threatened. Back in the day, wild animals. Today, it's when our, theo our theology is challenged or our long-held belief systems. So not only do they not want to, but they can't hear. They can't while that chemical is being released. Yeah, it, it goes back to the, the fear in the, in the system. Um, so there's a fear of something. And then there's these teachings that, well, you know, if someone is a heretic or a false teacher or has sinned or rebellious and they, they won't change, then you should shun them and you shouldn't, you know, be around them. And, and just picking and choosing scriptures that would kind of like fit that, but don't really fit it. And, and then, like you said, the, the, uh, just the, the fear that goes along with it that that now what you're saying about the brain um is very interesting uh, one this is one of the things i learned recently is 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 that you're spot on about this um it's actually very difficult for people to change their mind when they're an adult if they've been like indoctrinated to a certain degree it's because of of the the brain is kind of like almost changes a person's uh, thinking so that uh, anything that goes outside their, their new way of thinking or the, the, the indoctrinated way of thinking is a threat. Right. And so they just resist. And so what I discovered was that the only way that people can really change, you know, past their formative years, when you're younger, you can change pretty easily because you're still kind of forming your worldview and so forth. But Later on, really, the only way to change is if you have some kind of a pain, painful experience in your life or an emotional experience in your life that makes you rethink things and say, well, you know, I, I got to rethink this. But it, you're, you're absolutely right. Most of the time, people are just, you know, digging on their heels, thinking that you're wrong, 
they're afraid they don't want to be around you so they shun you or whatever i've had that same uh experience it's very painful um what about uh i'm sure a lot of people will say to you you know barbara you're really embracing new age teaching you know you're really we're starting to believe some some really crazy stuff out there how how do you re respond to that or what what do you say to that it is a new age and you know the interesting thing is is that jesus was the one that spoke of it when he continually spoke of in the age to come he said the age to come on many occasions and told us what would happen in the age to come and so the term new age yeah, I, I understand what they're, what they're saying is, is you're embracing something outside of um, what is traditionally taught within Christ, modern Christianity. But it's certainly, I mean, if you look within the scriptures, they practiced. I mean, it talks about dividing the, the kidneys um, to do divination back in the Old Testament, the casting of lots. Um, and, and, and heck, the whole Bible is, is, a, is an astrology book. It's not just, uh, I mean, you know, if we, if, if we look back at, uh, I, I guess, 6,000 years ago, the age of Taurus was um, prominent. That was the constellation was prominent in our eastern sky at, at the vernal equinox. And that's when the when that age passed is when the when the golden calf was destroyed. Two thousand years later, we've got the blowing of the shofar and the ram caught in the thicket. That's the age of Aries. Two thousand years later, it's all the fish symbolism. And two thousand later, now we have the water bearer, the age of Aquarius. So I mean, all throughout the Bible, there's so many references to astrology and astronomy. It's it's you can't escape from it. So the people that talk about new age, that's just fear that's been instilled by teachers over the last 30, 40 years because they don't know what to think of it and it doesn't fit within their theological guidelines. So I say it is a new age. Jesus spoke of it. And for, for, for a, a, a religion that you know, in its Bible says over 600 times, fear not. Why would you find your basis in fear? And do you really think that you can overcome deception with fear? That's right. That's crazy. It is. Yeah, but I mean, it just goes to show there's a, that's another part of the fear-based system. It's like certain things, they just put fear in you. Oh, I can't, you know, I can't go that way because that's new age or that's, you know, heretical or whatever. So one of the things that I discovered as I started to rethink the Bible, um, I heard two voices in the scriptures. I started to see there's a, there's a voice of retribution and violence and wrath. And there's another voice, the voice of love, forgiveness, restoration, and, Jesus's voice and some of the prophets and some of the, some of the stories in the old Testament, but, but not most of them. So how do you handle the Bible now? How do you handle the two voices in scripture? Well, largely I see the voice of ego, which is a human voice and the voice of the spirit or the boy, the voice of the divine. Um, 
And when I look at stories uh, in the Old Testament where we see this wrathful, vengeful um, God, I see it through the eyes of metaphor rather than history. I see it telling a story um, uh, that will help us understand our journey rather than seeing these people as literal. Uh, just for example, it was um, Abraham and uh, Hagar. Is that right? Hagar? Yeah. And Sarah. And, you know, the, the story goes that, you know, God says you're going to have a baby, but they're in their 90s and, and uh, Sarah laughs and Abram takes his maidservant and impregnates her. And yet the New Testament said that these are uh, allegory. When it speaks of Abram and, and Sarah and Hagar, these are allegory. And it goes on, it says, these things happened to them for you upon whom the end of the age has come. There it is again, the end of the age. Mm -hmm. So we can see that things were not necessarily uh, to be taken literally. They happened for you so that you would understand your own journey. And it's by us, our egocentric self, that takes things into our own hands and creates um, something that is not eternal, that is not um, in the way of love and kindness and benevolence. Um, when we take things into our own hands, as, as, as Abram did with Hagar. So everything, um, everything to me in the scripture can be taken metaphorically if we are willing to shift out of a literal mindset or consciousness and see the fluidity of what spirit has to offer in that text. Everything. Everything can be taken metaphorically, allegorically, figuratively, if we want to. But there has to be a willingness to see it that way. Right. So you still, though, believe that some things in the Bible are historical, right? I, you know, when it said these things happened to them mm -hmm. or you. So that tells me that these things happened. But we have a choice if we want to see the template or the mystery behind the history. So did some things happen? Absolutely. Can we take them figuratively? Absolutely. Right. There's always something there for us to be seen metaphorically, allegorically, figuratively, if we are willing to let go of the literal interpretation. That's just when Jesus said in the, in the, in the it may not have been Jesus, it might have been Paul, that said the, the, the letter kills. Right. The spiritual gives life. So we have to see things as mystics and sages, no longer students being tutored by somebody else, but to enter into and apprehend these mysteries on our own. You know, it, it says in the, in the New Testament, there'll come a time when no man will teach you. When no man will teach you, you'll be taught by the Spirit. And again, that's the willingness to shift out of the old. And I even go into great detail about what the old wineskin is and what the new wineskin is. Mm -hmm. 
it's consciousness. Well, it, it reminds me that uh, <clears throat> what you're describing, um, I can see myself coming to a similar conclusion, but I, but I looked at the history of, of how people viewed the Bible, and I discovered that in the Jewish tradition and in the first century among Jesus' followers, um, Jesus himself, Paul, they didn't look at the Bible as this altogether completely 100% true rule book across the board. Uh, the, the Jewish people kind of looked at the scriptures almost like a debate sometimes. And that's why the prophets critique much of the Torah, the sacrificial system, for example. That's why Jesus, you know, contradicted much of the Torah and Paul did too, because like you said, perhaps they were, they were here listening to the spirit, tell them what the true meaning, what was allegorical and what was really the truth and the core and uh, coming to, to conclusions without having to accept everything is literally true. And just because God said this or did, supposedly did this doesn't mean that's the character of God necessarily. That's right. That's absolutely right. So and if you take it literal, we have a, a, a schizophrenic God. Absolutely. Because it's very obvious in Joshua, for example, just sit down and read Joshua. God was saying, you know, kill all the mother, women and children, you know, sacrifice, you know, burn the city down, kill everything. And it was treat them like your enemies and kill them. And, you know, it's just totally contradictory to the, to the, to the love ethic of, of Jesus and, and what but Paul you know, taught. Look at, Michael, look at what we have today. You know, we have a schizophrenic religion. Oh yeah. You know, one that, that teaches, you know, Jesus says, you know, love and honor and take care of the widows and the orphans and, you know, do not take your life into consideration. You know, your, your needs will be supplied. And then we've got people saying, build a wall. <laughs> Put them in jail. Kick them out. This is our country. You know, Jesus was not a nationalist. Uh, it's amazing to me. Yeah. Well, I, we, could go, we could go down that rabbit trail and, you know, talk on that forever. But you're right. It's just the, the mindset of the evangelical movement has it's gotten to the point where they, uh, m many or most of them will accept those kinds of views on immigration and nationalism and, and so forth. And it's completely opposite to what Christ taught. Um, so what is the message of salvation then? Let's just, let's address that question. Embrace your divinity. I suppose it has something to do with that. What does that mean? And what is the message of salvation? Well, for me, when I lost the word saved, I began to understand that it's not about going to heaven when we die. Michael, it is all about the scriptures. I think it's 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about this mortal must be clothed with immortality and this corruptible must be clothed with incorruption and that this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. So I don't believe salvation occurs after we die. I believe salvation occurs when death is swallowed up of life. I believe when we begin to eat from the tree that knows between good and evil and begin to judge between good and evil, that it was a necessary immersion into duality consciousness. We had to go there. 
And in Genesis chapter six, it says, man is now mortal. His years will be numbered to 120. And so we have death. But I believe that we are divine beings that don't have to die. I believe that, that, in, that what it means to be saved is that we don't die ever, ever. And the path and the pattern of death and resurrection has nothing to do with physical death. It's a metaphor to leave behind our human way of thinking. When Jesus said, judge not, lest the judgment that you judge another fall on your own head, he was teaching us about the mechanism that drives this present age of darkness and death and mortality that we self-propagate the age by our own judgments and criticisms. Because whatever the divine focuses on and applies the emotional currency toward, it will create. And so we are responsible for creating this world of death and destruction. And when we grasp what Jesus said, do not judge, love, and show tolerance, we begin to transition the age out from the old and into the new. So in a nutshell, saved means you don't die and that heaven exists here and now. You know, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in the heavenly places. So we have the ability and the capability to bring heaven to earth. It's not a place we go to when we die. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, the kingdom is within you. Right. How right. can we go there when it's within me? See, and, there, and that coming back to that, um, you know, those conflicting belief systems, we think we're going to go somewhere when we die, you know, and, and it's going to be heaven for those that behaved and nothing could be farther from the truth. So we have to embrace that this divine spark, this, this piece of God, you know, when I, I, I write about how Mary is a template and is figurative for all of humanity, that at one point in her consciousness, our consciousness, divinity made known to us that, hey, I'm going to penetrate your DNA with immortality with spirit and we said let it be unto me as you have spoken and so divinity has wrapped itself in the swaddle of our very own flesh and blood and it's growing inside this human manger and will someday be formed fully and experience a birth mm -hmm. in us and that immortal divine being is what saves the body mm -hmm. Well, what you're saying <clears throat> kind of reminds me of um, some of my historical studies. You know, like the church has this doctrine of original sin, like you're depraved and you're terrible and you're on the way to hell. And unless you jump through some religious hoops, you're not going to go to heaven and, and so forth. But, um, you know, uh, the Bible also says that we're created in the image of God. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. And by the way, I think, I, I think he said that to the Pharisees, <laughs> even them. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's what you're saying really dovetails with this notion that uh, we, are, we have uh, the spirit of God within us. Uh, we might be immature spiritually. Uh, we might 
get lost and go down paths that aren't good for us and harmful to others. But if we stop and turn, we can embrace the divinity within us uh, if we open our minds. And um, I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Is that right? Yes. And, and not only that, but, you know, we have to realize that, you know, in the parable of the rich man and the beggar, mm-hmm. we're both. They're not separate. The Pharisee and the Sadducees and then the disciples, we're both. We're, we're all of them. They, they are all of us. Mm-hmm. When Jesus, you know, spoke of the Pharisees and said, you're whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, he's speaking of the egocentric human being. And are, and are we dying? Are we subject to death? Yes. It's because we live according to the human part of us that judges between good and evil. And, and again, unnecessary immersion into human consciousness. Let me just say this one thing. Hebrews chapter 5, end of the chapter, Paul says, look, I want to tell you about this immortal order of Melchizedek that has no mother and no father, but lives forever. I want to tell you about that, but I can't because you're immature, you're babes, you drink milk. Meat is reserved for those who are of full age, having had their senses exercised to discern good from evil. That right there tells me, Michael, that we needed to have this immersion into human consciousness, learning how to discern good from evil, because it is a prerequisite of what it says in Hebrews chapter 6, let us go on to perfection. Not right. laying again the foundation of the, of, of the doctrines of hell, of baptisms. So we had to see these things as we saw them, as things that occurred outside of us. But now we're experiencing this divine inversion where we see that everything has been projected outside of us for us to learn about it. And, but then at one point we realize, oh, the rich man and the beggar, man, that's inside of me. That's the ego and that's the spirit. It's in me. The Christ is in me. The 12 disciples surrounding the Christ in the upper room, that's in me as my consciousness elevates to this higher place, this heavenly place. It's all inside of us. But if we continue to take things literally, we will miss it, and we will not go on to perfection. Well, what uh, w- one of the things I've, uh, I'm hearing, and I, I, it dovetails with what I've studied, um, when you kind of mature spiritually, what you're talking about, to the point of understanding, you know, the way of Christ, the love, restoration, uh, get rid of the ego, um, focus on accepting um, the, the love of God, etc. cetera. Um, this is kind of a way of Christ saving humanity from the ego-driven way of, 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 and mindset. And so uh, I'm starting to think that another aspect of salvation is that Jesus's way of life and living is a way of, uh, that if we embraced would save humanity from violence and war and, and some of the social problems that we have in our societies. And so that to me, that's part of salvation as well. 
you know, it, it's absolutely um, true. And let me, let, me, let me just clarify one thing too. It's very popular right now to think that the ego needs to die, that we need to get rid of the ego, that the ego needs to be silenced, that we need to, to do what we can not to let that part of us. But you know, we can't. The ego is intrinsically part of who we are, but it does need to have a, a cross experience, metaphorically a cross experience where the horizontal aspect of our egocentric life comes to that intersection of our divine life, but experiences death to self, but it resurrects as a servant to the divine. Mm -hmm. so the, the ego has a place, but mm -hmm. not when it's master of the body. So it goes into the, into the grave as master of the body, but it resurrects as a servant to the divine. And I say this because divinity is looking for a helpmate it needs the aspect of us that can focus that can think that can reason and that can emote and that is driven by the ego but as long as the ego thinks it's the master that's the master that beats the servants when the when the the, the vineyard is let out to another keeper it's let out to the to the ego it's not somebody else doing this to us it's us doing it right to. right so all of these templates out there in scripture are actually stories of what happens inside of us let me say this really quick too had a friend who said barbara you cannot tell me that there is no satan because i've stood toe to toe you cannot tell me there is no hell because i've been there and i looked at her and i said these things will appear externally as long as you need them to. But they are internal and unseen by the ego. They are internal principles of your own nature. Interesting, yeah. So we've, we've been talking with uh, Barbara Simons, uh, the author of uh, Escaping Christianity and Finding Christ. And uh, this has been a delightful conversation, Barbara. Uh, we're kind of running out of time right now. Um, uh, I want to I want to let our listeners know where they can find your book, and I think you have a website. Is it barbarasimons.com? It is spelled with a Y. Simons is spelled with a Y. S Y M O N S. Barbarasimons.com. You can find her book uh, if you if you went to Amazon and just put it in there, you'd find it there too. So um, I recommend that you read her book and get an understanding of what she went through coming out of charismatic evangelical Christianity and evolving, uh, I guess maybe you'd call yourself a mystic, but still a, a follower of Jesus' teachings. Is that correct? Absolutely. Right. So um, it's been a great uh, conversation with you, Barbara. We'd, we'll have to get together a, another time and maybe develop, delve in a little deeper about one of these uh, issues that we've brought up. Um, but uh, this has been a great introduction to your journey and to your book. And I want to thank you for, for joining me today. Um, we will uh, be putting this on the podcast and you'll be able to see it there and share it with your, with your audience as well. So is there anything else you want to share? Any last words? No, just very uh, grateful. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you, Michael, the work that you're doing is vital. 
you have a voice, you have a strong voice, and you have a book, Craft Brew Jesus, that is off the charts. Amazing. <laughs> uh, um, I'm reading it now. And oh, good. I really appreciate the study and the uh-huh. time and the effort that you've put into it. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah well, that was, a, that was a fun book to, to write, but it, it does take a lot of research. Um, but it's so worth it. There's so many fascinating things about history, et cetera, that opens your mind. So, all right. Well, we're going to uh, tie things up here. Thanks again, Barbara. That, this has been the number five episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. And uh, folks, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Barbara. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.